Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello and welcome back to What Went Wrong, your favorite podcast about what went wrong on Hollywood's various hits, misfires, and everything in between. I am Chris Winterbauer here as always with Lizzie Bassett. Lizzie, how are you doing this week? Doing great. I took a 10-minute nap today. Wow. Life's really turning around. (laughs) I had a 10-minute panic attack. Anyway, uh, this week we are very lucky to be joined by two friends from one of our favorite new podcasts, Hanksy Panksy. We'll get into what it's about in a second. Welcome Sam Siegel and Luke Patrick to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Thanks, y'all. Please, uh, really quickly, tell us what Hanksy Panksy is about. Because when my wife told me about it, I didn't think it was real. Uh, Luke, do you want the <laughs> honors, or, or do you want me to take that? Yeah, I mean, we can we can chop it up. Basically, it's a very dumb idea uh, for two very dumb idiots, which is me and Sam. Where two best friends watch every single Tom Hanks movie ever made in chronological order. Yeah, that's the tall and short of it. Uh, he hurts us. We we, I actually we, we do, take yeah it. we take it. Uh, we don't even hurt him back. <laughs> yeah. How many are there? Out of curiosity, I think last count was something in the order of seventy. So this is oh, no. a, a multi-year project mm-hmm. that we have assigned to ourselves. Okay. And as I've listened to you know the first. 10 episodes or so. Hanks really started his career on a just stinker after stinker. It was a tough go, I think, for a while. Yeah, it was a, it was a big old pile of garbage. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny because yeah. I always think about, like, we were talking about this last night when we were watching the unbelievable treat that you have uh, forced us to watch for today's episode. <laughs> um, my boyfriend and our producer and I were talking about what his big break was and i was like bosom buddies uh big like those are the only two things i can think of so it's interesting to hear there's stuff before that yeah there's a whole slew of it and you're right on the money because we are post big for the the meal that you guys are serving up today like what we're what we've just viewed is post so there's no excuse No, no it's insane okay so so you guys kind of sludged through you know the first eight stinkers and nine and you have splash in there and you have big but as you mentioned we're at a great point where our podcasts get to intersect because there's a movie that i've wanted to cover for a long time that is one of tom hanks's like kind of early career stinkers and that is the bonfire of the vanities and so we are meeting it is a meeting of the minds here uh and i i will give a quick 
intro to kind of the the high level of the movie and then i'd love if you guys would do like a little bit of your patented kind of three-act breakdown mm. of this movie um so the bonfire of the vanities is a 1990 supposedly uh black comedy no. directed and pr- produced by brian de palma starring tom hanks bruce willis melanie griffith griffith kim cattrall uh and morgan freeman adapted for the screen by michael christopher from the best-selling novel of the same name by Tom Wolfe, very famous uh, writer. The movie was a complete and utter failure. No surprise, we just watched it. A humiliating outing for its rising stars and a financial blow to Warner Brothers, bringing in a mere $15.6 million against its $50 million-plus budget. Oof. Yes, huge catastrophe. I highly recommend, if you enjoy this podcast, that you pick up a copy of Julie Solomon's incredible book, the Devil's Candy, An Anatomy of a Hollywood Disaster. Julie Salomon was a writer for the Wall Street Journal who Brian De Palma gave complete access to follow the entire production of the film because she was a huge fan of the book and she wanted to write about the entire process of adapting a book and what was supposed to be a book about the adaptation of a prestige book into a prestige picture became a book about this unmitigated disaster of this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, to give you Luke Patrick's patented three X structure, your money back guarantee. <laughs> Man, to be put on the spot here a little bit. I think this one's actually fairly easy to do. So the the first act we are introduced to, and guys, I'm sorry. I hope you know character names because oh, Sam we and don't. Oh yeah, no. Okay, great. <laughs> I, I'll fill them in. I got him. <laughs> Thank you. Someone pull up the IMDb. So uh, act one. We're introduced to Tom Hanks. Sherman McCoy. Sherman McCoy. Thank you. <laughs> um, Sherman McCoy is a uh, a stock or options trader, uh, one or the other. Anyway, high roller. It's the 80s. Uh, he's bringing in bags of money. Uh, act one, as we sort of establish his character, he is kind of like a Wolf of Wall Street figure. He's just generally breaking in bags of cash, comes from a prestige family, is having an affair uh, that his wife kind of finds out about in the beginning. So there's some tension, but then uh, Act 1 kind of slides out and into Act 2 when they are, he and this mistress are stuck in the Bronx and they accidentally hit a guy while they're supposedly being robbed. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on that in a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's some. Unclear what's happening. Very in that unclear. Scene. <laughs> exactly. And so they, they hit a guy who then ends up in a coma. And so, Act Two, you know, we're, we're building tension as the, the local African American community really rallies around this guy in the hospital. And then um, there's a attorney general, Mr. Vice, who wants to go after whoever this was, because essentially there's a race component to this and they really want to bag one of these these rich white people to kind of help Mr. Weiss's campaign. So there's conflicting interests between the attorney general trying to bag him and Tom Hanks trying to subdue this entire uh, experience. Plus his mistress is doing the same thing to varying degrees, uh, culminating with him being arrested and then eventually tried. So at the end of Act 2, we're in the situation where Tom Hanks is about to be tried and will most likely be found guilty. He'll go to jail. He's lost everything, his house, his wife, his job, uh, all of his fancy socialite friends. He shoots a shotgun inside of his house several times. It's (laughs) wild. Um, And then in Act 3, we essentially resolve this entire fucking movie by him playing... We'll get to that. About two minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a real whiplash at the end when um, he plays a tape where he recorded his mistress admitting that she was the one driving the car. He dodges all charges. Morgan Freeman talks at us for about two and a half minutes. 
and then roll fucking credits. Um, <laughs> the movie ends with him playing an inadmissible piece of evidence yes. to the yes. courtroom. And then Morgan Freeman just fiat style is like, we're done. Yeah. Oh, this is over. Also, uh, I love how you're able to in- to the entire synopsis without ever mentioning the fact that Bruce Willis was in this movie yeah. playing the narrator <laughs> because and the he character. Who, because he's be so there. unnecessary <laughs> to this movie. So as Luke mentioned, uh, it, it's, it's a uh, rise, fall, rise again story. Um, and uh, it is bookended by B- Bruce Willis's supposedly literary character. Although imagining Bruce Willis as someone who's literate is yeah, that, that was so. a tough one. And, and <laughs> if, if I may, Luke, you did forget all the virulent racism. Well, we've got plenty of time yeah. to really stew on that, guys. I would say that's probably the next 40 minutes of this podcast. Very strange. Also, I want to point out that Bruce Willis's book somehow has catapulted him into superstar status, which I wasn't aware it was a thing that happened to authors that write true crime books. It's like he is the Rolling Stones. It's now. insane. Like, that's correct. Yeah. So it, it begs the question, why was this movie made? And it was really only made because Tom Wolfe's book, The Bonfire of the Vanities, published in 1987, his first novel, was an unprecedented success. And he was a very successful writer of a lot of nonfiction and experimental work, like the electric Kool-Aid acid test, for example, uh, The Right Stuff, uh, Radical Chic and Mau Mauing the Fat Catchers. That's not a real book. Yeah, that's that's nothing. (laughs) And so he wrote this book that was called by many the quintessential book of the 80s. Published in 87, The Bonfire of the Vanities referred to this monk in Florence back in like the 15th century who said that we were getting too obsessed with the vanities of our lives, the excesses of our lives. So he, he and his followers went house to house, collected jewelry, books, articles of clothing. They put them in a giant bonfire in the middle of the town and they lit it all on fire to show like we're purifying ourselves. So the book sold 725,000 hardcover copies. It made over $14 million. Uh, And the manuscript got sent around Hollywood in 1987 when they were releasing the book. But the general consensus was that the movie would be impossible to make because the book is entirely filled with unlikable characters and there's no direct through line. So like in the book, everybody's an asshole. That's the whole point. That is why this more racist elements maybe like kind of work in the book. Because Tom Wolfe's point in the book was that everybody's an opportunist. Mm. But then certain changes end up happening where that gets lost, like in the final story. And uh, Luke, I don't know if you have any insight. You've read some of Tom Wolfe like into his writing style or anything like that. But is there anything about him that would make him particularly difficult to adapt in your mind? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question because it would... preface this by saying that I have read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and it is a phenomenal book, but it has been a really long time. Um, And I would also put him in the same bucket as people like Ken Kesey or Jack Kerouac Mm -hmm. where, um, or Salinger, where Catcher in the Rye was probably a great book when you were in high school, but if you reread it, it's probably just about an arrogant asshole white kid Mm -hmm. who tries to have sex with a prostitute. Um, Yeah. So with that preface, um, his his writing style is really stream of conscious and really tries to build. It's almost like you're inside of a painting, especially electric Kool-Aid acid test. It tries to build an experience for you. Um, so through that book, you really get a sense for what it was like to be tripping your nutsack off driving around the South um, or wherever you happen to be. I cannot imagine trying to translate mm-hmm. that if that's what this novel is. And I, I really wanted to read it, but y'all it's like 600 something pages. Oh no, and no one no, has time yeah. for that. Yeah. 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 
So I, it's uh, sitting next to Infinite Jest in my pile oh, of books. I will talk never about read. vanities you can burn. That's, you're not going to ever do that. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to briefly, because we keep mentioning the sort of racism that pops up in this movie, and I know we're going to get to it a lot more, but just to kind of touch on it for a minute for people that haven't seen this movie, and I would recommend that you don't ever, the first thing that stands out is that as soon as what Luke was talking about, where Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffith, the mistress, end up in the Bronx, it is the most absurd an insane portrayal of the Bronx I've ever seen, where it's like they turn a corner and she's like, where are we? And he's like, <laughs> oh, we're north of Manhattan. And then there's like <laughs> trash cans on fire and there's just people. No, there's cars, <laughs> on, cars fire. on fire. It's literally- it becomes like Mad Max it- beyond the Thunderdome all of a sudden. And there's just people <laughs> attacking them for no reason. And it's the most absurd depiction of a normal night on a street in the Bronx that I have ever seen. Yeah, it Yeah, Sam, what was your favorite moment of, of as you mentioned virulent racism mm. as you So were going it may movie? have been uh kind of what Lizzie was talking about where uh the Bronx was uh, portrayed as uh Fallujah uh mm-hmm. where every <laughs> yeah. black man is either a criminal or a pimp and every woman a sex worker and not 100% and yes. not the Bronx where my dad grew up and my grandparents lived. <laughs> It was insane. <laughs> Indeed. So, and we're going to get into all those ju- choices um, <laughs> as they were in just a moment. But but we have to get to the man behind the movie. And that is this producer whose name is Peter Goober. Well. <laughs> I wish it was a different name, but that's his name. He reads the book in August of 1987 and he instantly decides he has to make it. And he is not just some small time producer. He had made Rain Man, Batman, Gorillas in the Mist, The Color Purple, Inner Space, The Witches of Eastwick, Flashdance, Missing, Tangoid Cash, and American Werewolf in oh London. My God. He was a big time producer. That list is insane. And he made it this is insane. movie. And he reads this book and he says, I can pull was this off. Was he okay? I know how to like <laughs> he, no. Uh unclear. So he uh he has an exclusive deal with Warner Brothers. He calls Lucy Fisher. So there's an executive at Warner Brothers who's in charge of the action films. And then there's Lucy Fisher who's in charge of the prestige films. So he calls her and he goes, I have your next prestige project. They, get, they shell out $750,000 for the rights of the project. Uh, and Lucy Fisher, by the way, if you've been following our podcast, she cut her teeth running Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope back in the day okay. before she went studio. Uh, so... She is like, this movie is incredibly important to my career because it's going to be the most expensive prestige film that Warner Brothers has ever made. Our prestige department is going to be at the same caliber as the action department. And so she and Goober are working together to turn this thing into this enormous tentpole intellectual movie. They go and they hire Michael Christopher, who's a Pulitzer and Tony Award winning writer, to write the script. So far, so good. Uh, he'd written The Witches of Eastwick, and he was this like workhorse writer, and they pay him $600,000 to write oh the script. God. So already one one and a half million dollars basically in just to get a script going Fuck. for this movie. Uh, so then he turns in the first draft in October of 1988, and everyone's like, oh my God, this is a giant trash fire of a script. <laughs> Turns out it's really hard to condense a 650-page book into like a 98 to 120-page yeah, screenplay. Yeah, this thing is a miniseries at best. Like, it's so clear that points are being jumped over and, and missed, and I don't know why you yeah. would try to make this a movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and as I'm sure you guys have noticed, like, going through Hanks's career... 
as we get later into the 80s, movie budgets start just skyrocketing for no real reason. And so what happened was when Jaws went huge, Star Wars went huge, studios realized we could just do more front-end investment on these movies, and if we have a hit, they'll make like $500 million worldwide. But what that meant is all of a sudden directors realized if they had one failure, they'd be put in movie jail for like (laughs) years at a time. So all of a sudden, nobody wants to take risks on projects. So Goober can't find a director that will take this movie because nobody wants to risk their career on it. This is a book that has no likable characters. And so they tried like Mike Nichols, Norman Jewison. Both of them said no. They wanted Martin Scorsese. He was like, I'm good. They tried James Brooks. They sent the script to Steven Spielberg. And he was just like, I don't want anything to do with this movie. Like, this is this is not me. And so finally, in 1989, Goober proposes Brian De Palma, who's considered like one of the most controversial directors in Hollywood at the time. And I'm curious, is anyone here a big De Palma fan? Because you're a weirdo if you are, but that's great. And I'm just curious if you guys like know his work at all or anything like that. So no. I I feel like I've heard you mention him before on the podcast, but that's that's it. Yeah. So he was friends with Spielberg, friends with George Lucas, like he was kind of running in that crowd. Um, but he was like the East Coast weird kid. And so he had made a series of kind of like hyper-violent, hyper-sexualized movies like Blowout with John Travolta. He did Carrie. Oh, um, that's and right. Then it all, yeah, and it all culminated with The Untouchables, the Kevin Costner movie um, about mm-hmm. Elliot Ness and Al Capone. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. So really quick background on De Palma. He's the third son of Vivian and Anthony De Palma, who's an orthopedic surgeon. And this is a quote from his mom to give you a sense of like why De Palma wanted to make movies that grabbed people's attention. Quote, I had Bruce and Bruce was mine. Bruce was his oldest brother, the first child. I had Bart because one of the girls I would push carriages with had a child who'd inhaled a piece of carrot and died. So she had her first child because she loved him. The second child is an insurance policy. Oh my God. Uh, So that's why I had Bart. Brian was a mistake. Brian was a surprise. I didn't really want to have another baby. So Brian was like the third forgotten child of the family. Bruce was the perfect child. 
Bart was the artistic one. And then Brian was like always trying to get his parents' attention and competing with them to the point one time he was staying at home and his mom was convinced his dad was having an affair. So he started helping his mom trying to catch his dad have an affair. And then one night he grabbed a rifle dressed in all black, put on a ski mask, broke into his dad's office at the university who was working at, waited for him to come back with the suture nurse that he thought he was fucking. He was like 17 years old, confronted his dad with his gun and was like, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you're doing. Good God. By the way, you you skipped over the one title in his catalog that I think most people might know, um, which is Scarface. Yes. Oh, and he done Scarface, yeah. which people hated at the time. Oh, okay. They like hated it. They were like, it's so violent. It's so over the top. It only became popular later. Well, I, I got to tell you, um, haven't seen this movie. I, I agree with Brian's mom that he was a mistake. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll see if we can get you to love him by the end of it. He went to Columbia University. He was going to study physics. He falls in love with filmmaking. Uh, he makes a bunch of like no-budget films. He transferred to Sarah Lawrence. And then he was on a studio movie called Get to Know Your Rabbit, where he was directing Orson Welles. And it went really badly because directing Orson Welles can only go badly. He got fired from that. It was a Warner Brothers movie. And then, you know, he, he kind of leaned into the controversy. He told Esquire, I want to be famous. I want to be controversial. As soon as I get this dignity from Scarface, I'm going to go out and make an X-rated suspense porn picture. I'm sick of being censored. So if they want an X, they'll get a real X. They want to see terror. They want to see suspense. They want to see sex. I'm the person for the job. He was very, like, in-your-face, gonzo kind of style of filmmaking. So uh, with the success of The Untouchables, though, all of a sudden, like, Hollywood liked him now. And so they brought him in for a meeting on Bonfire. And he loved the book, but he didn't love the script. Uh, So they bring him in for a meeting at Warner Brothers. He crushes the meeting. They call Steven Spielberg, who they're obsessed with, and they're like, what do you think of De Palma? It turns out Spielberg and De Palma are best friends. So Spielberg gives them like a rave review, and they bring De Palma onto the movie. They pay him 250 grand to refuse any other directing work while he helps with the script rewrite. So like De Palma's in, they've got the script, they're good to go, and they start moving into casting. And this is where I'm really curious what you guys thought of the casting of this movie. In the book... Tom Hanks's character, Sherman McCoy, is supposed to be this like super waspy guy. Bruce Willis's character is supposed to be British. Melanie Griffith's character is supposed to be like a 25-year-old sex kitten. Uh, and Morgan Freeman's character is supposed to be white and Jewish. So I'm just curious how you felt about like how everything turned out <laughs> at the end of uh, the process in terms of how they cast this film. Hey, that's Buck Wild. Um... Yeah, I'm surprised that you're telling me Morgan Freeman's not white and Jewish. This <laughs> comes as a, quite a surprise. Yeah, that's some news. What's weird to me is that Tom Hanks has pulled off Wasp before in the similarly unwatchable Volunteers. Yes. But this is a real different take on on, on Wasp. I would say it's not a take on yeah, Wasp. Yeah, he actually doesn't really scream Waspy up, upper crust to me. And something that we both said watching it last night was just everyone is miscast in every single part in a way that like... I don't think I've seen in other movies where it's not it's not like one or two characters. It is every person. Oh yeah. And when I when I saw the way that Tom Hanks was talking and the way that like Melanie Griffith was kind of trying to interact with him, it reminded me of like what they actually managed to nail at the beginning of Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and his like ridiculous super waspy fiance. Yes. Like that is, I think that got it actually mm-hmm. and kind of got it at the level of satire that this felt like it was going for, but that just doesn't match 
A, the people they cast, or B, the actual seriousness of the story that they're telling. Yeah. Something Sam and I have talked about before as Resident Hanks experts is that at this point in his career, he really wanted to break out into more dramatic films, but he was really, really known for being this high-energy comedic value actor and you can you can totally see that yeah. with what you're saying like he's operating at a different energy level that's just very high octane uh, it reminded me a lot of this other movie that we watched which for the love of god do not see this movie <laughs> but um every time we say goodbye was this like really oh, dramatic god. post-war film that he was in same thing it's like everyone around him is so dramatic and he's operating at this like manic puppy level energy I'd like to throw out a proposal. Don't you guys think the movie would have been better if they just swapped Bruce Willis and Tom Hanks? Yes, yes. Oh, put him in yes. the part yes. where he's supposed to be, you know, a difficult to work with jerk that would allow someone to run someone over. I'm not exactly. saying Bruce Willis would do that. Maybe he's a nice guy, but just saying but what I feel. Like, Man, ever since I met Sherman McCoy, oh my, my writing jobs have been that much harder. <laughs> so let's talk about why they made some of these casting decisions. So, uh, they're making this 30 plus million dollar prestige film and it's all about these unlikable characters. In Hollywood, it's considered death to have unlikable characters in a movie. And so they decide, okay, well we need to have likable actors play these unlikable characters to start to make them sympathetic. And so Peter Goober instantly is just like, Tom Hanks, he's, you can't hate Tom Hanks. I love Tom, he just like has such a hard on for Tom Hanks from the beginning. And without even telling the studio, he approaches Tom Hanks at the Governor's Ball following the 1989 Academy Awards. This is actually before De Palma was on the movie. And he goes, hey, do you want to play Sherman McCoy from Bonfire of the Vanities? And Tom Hanks is like, isn't he like a waspy bond trader, like asshole? And he's like, yes, you'd be perfect. <laughs> and Tom Hanks is like, uh, I guess. He, like you said, wanted to start playing serious roles. He wanted to be taken seriously as an actor. His biggest hits were Big and Splash, a movie where he plays a little boy that becomes a grown-up and a movie where he's fucking a mermaid and so he like wanted to move into the prestige category so even though it was a risk he's like okay i'm definitely down to do this movie brian de palma didn't really want him he liked steve martin for the role that's interesting the studio said quote we're not casting a 60 year old because his hair had gone white by that point and then the studio wanted tom cruise to play Sherman McCoy. Also could have worked. Which also yeah. could have been interesting. Basically just the same character from Rain exactly. Man at this point. But apparently Goober would not relent. He would literally call the studio heads and just chant Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, Tom, until they hung up the phone on him over and over again. And finally they agreed. <laughs> Luke, Luke, we got to call this guy. <laughs> he knows, you guys have to get him on up. your show. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's funny. He had seen all the same 13 Tom Hanks roles that you yeah. had, but his reaction was, this guy is dynamite. <laughs> like, I have to have Well, him. to be fair, Bosom Buddies, he, it, he was great in. Big, he's great in. Splash, he's great. Like, he, he is a movie star. I understand you guys have watched a bunch of clinkers, but, like, he is extremely likable across all of them, unless I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, no, he's still my best friend. Right. Um, <laughs> he's just hurt me a number of times, like all best friends do. Sure. So then they start casting the role of Maria, who, Maria Ruskin, played by Melanie Griffith in the film, who's his debutante, weird sex kitten she's baby a voice. Southern, she's a Southern young, like, gold-digging wife of a New York... Uh, banker or something i can't remember exactly what he did but she's a very young wife married to an old man but from the south but living in new york 
Yes. Real quick, Sam, as a fellow Southerner, and this is not the most problematic part of this movie, so forgive me for bringing it up at all, but Sam, <laughs> how'd you feel about that girl's accent, man? Hey, man, it was real nasty. Uh, it just sort of traveled all around the South, and it never real Ned one spot uh, at all. Hell no, man. That was real bad. Was Wait, real where nasty. in the South are you from? Uh, Arkansas. Oh, I'm from Virginia, a different part of the South. Oh, okay. Well, then, hey, girl, how, what'd you think of this accent? Then? Well, you got the expertise. I thought it was real bad. <laughs> so <laughs> it was actually so bad that her almost her entire performance was re-looped in ADR. Because they, and it was still oh, that bad? bad? It was still that bad. So either you couldn't understand her on set, <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad, or, or the accent just like varied so wildly that they looped almost every single one of her lines in post. So that's almost no actual dialogue from set that's been so captured. So I had one, because um, her audio, like the audio from, yeah. from everything she says sounds very uh, straight. It's very like subdued, which would make sense if it's re-recorded. That mm-hmm. the way she's moving mm-hmm. and acting is is much more like high energy. And then her voice is always like, yeah she sounds like she's doing a jennifer tilly impression it's very weird she's like a prototype Uh, for the sexy baby in a in a bad way i would say yes she also was uncomfortable with some of the dialogue so she would say it really quietly because she didn't want other crew members to have her hear it so like when she has to say like hey listen eat my ass to like the guy that doesn't speak english she like really didn't want to say that line so they had to like loop it louder in post i didn't want her to say it either Uh, but she did anyway that was not my least favorite Melanie Griffith line in this whole thing. The one that made my flesh want to crawl off my body was the, like, I've got a, what was it? I've got a thing for soft dicks or something. I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) Don't ever want to hear that. A lot of real big lines in this movie. Um, (laughs) Melanie Griffith had kind of found fame late in her career for an actress. De Palma actually discovered her for his movie Body Double, where she played a porn actress. She was one of the only actresses that was willing to take the role. She did a great job in it. He loved working with her, although she was like hopped up on all sorts of drugs, apparently. Aww. And then it was Working Girl that she did a couple years later that really blew Which her up. Which she's very cute in. She's great. The concerns from the studio were that she was difficult to work with. She was the daughter of Tippi mm-hmm. Hedren. She's from a Hollywood family, and she's very anxious, and she had used substances to quell that. But she was now sober, which the good news was, you know, you were going to get a sober performance. The bad news was all the anxieties came back. The other concern that De Palma had was like she was playing the sex kitten and she had just given birth and she was going to have to be in a lot of skimpy outfits, etc. And he was a little bit concerned about what she would look like on camera. And she was also older than the role was. So De Palma told the studio to delay contract negotiations with Griffith, who'd been told that she had the part while he auditioned more people for the role of Maria. And the front runner quickly became Uma Thurman, who was only 19 at the time and had just made dangerous liaisons. And apparently was just a hair taller than Tom I was gonna Tom say, Hanks. yeah, she's like six, six foot six one. Yeah, so she came in and they did a test in the room with Tom Hanks where she comes in and she's like very quiet, blah, blah, blah. And then she was so sexy during the test scene. It was like the jungle scene where they start making love that like Tom Hanks got flustered and walked out of the room. And like all the men in the room were like adjusting. Their Ew. Pants. The Ugh. author describes it and it was very uncomfortable. Um, you're making and a then very she solid just, like, argument for soft dicks right now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're right. Bring them back. Um, <laughs> 
And so De Palma actually really liked Thurman because he was like, this is a woman who, you know, Tom Hanks' character would risk throwing his life away. I will also say about Uma Thurman, she has an edge to her that Melanie Griffith doesn't, where I, I might buy Uma Thurman being the mistress that kind of turns on a dime and is like, I'm not going to tell the police I hit this person. Yeah. Tom Hanks didn't want to work with her, though, because he viewed himself as a talented comedic performer and he liked Melanie Griffith as a comedic performer and he didn't feel that Uma Thurman had the comedy chops to keep up with him as they did these scenes that involved her saying the wrong things or, you know, being an absurd character. So they do a screen test and from what I read, it sounds like Hanks tanks the screen test. Mm intentionally with Uma Thurman to make sure that Melanie Griffith gets the part. So in the end, De Palma relents. The studio closes with Griffith and De Palma just kind of starts preparing himself mentally for working with her. So like Hanks wants to be a serious actor. That's why he wants this movie. Melanie Griffith wants to prove that she's still sexy. That's why she wants this movie. De Palma wants to prove that he can make a prestige picture. That's why. So like everybody's doing this movie to try to like get to the next rung, you know what I mean, in their career. And Bruce Willis is like, this is the movie that's gonna get me away from like action star to serious actor. So the movie's cast, it's got a director, it's going great, they're in pre-production, and then Sony Electronics buys Columbia Pictures in this huge deal that rocks Hollywood and forms Sony Pictures Entertainment, and they reach out to the biggest producer in Hollywood who just made Batman, and that's Peter Goober, the producer of Bonfire of the Vanities. And they pay $600 million to Warner Brothers to buy him out of his contract to come run Sony Pictures. So Warner Brothers no longer has a producer on their tentpole movie that's supposed to be released in Christmas of 1990. And instead of trying to find someone last minute and maybe pushing the date, they just say, fuck it. They promote De Palma to producer. They give him a co-producer and they don't assign a producer to the oh, movie. No. A producer's job really is making sure everything's happening on time and on budget. And you know what I'm saying? It's like they are the ones guiding the ship at the end of the day. Like the director's making all the creative decisions and they have lost their captain and they are not replacing it. The studio's just like, they'll be fine. And it seems like that was probably a bit of a mistake. I would say uh, so. Based on what we're seeing at the end. But the biggest issue that they're running into is that because the movie is like shitting on all of these New York people, no one in New York wants to let them shoot at any of their locations. The American Museum of Natural History won't let them film there because the donors are people that Tom Wolfe took swipes at in the book. The rabbi at Temple Emmanuel throws them out because they took swipes at the people that go to that temple. The movie's running into scheduling problems. Melanie Griffith's filming Pacific Heights. She's not available until July 9th. Bruce Willis has to be off by the end of July to shoot Hudson Hawk. The start date is supposed to be April 13th, and they have to make a Christmas release date. So they're starting to film in April, and they have to deliver the film to theaters by December. And De Palma's like, can we push the release date? And they say no, because they want the movie off the books before the end of the fiscal year. So Caruso makes this plan to make it work, like six days a week shooting for 67 days with night shoots for most of the shoot. It is an immense amount of pressure on this movie. And Tom Hanks is feeling the pressure. And as you guys probably know, like Tom Hanks, he's not really a method actor, but he feels pressure to go method for this movie because Robert De Niro had just done Raging Bull and he gained like 100 pounds for it. And he kind of lashed out at actors who believed they could just pretend. So Tom Hanks had his teeth capped for the movie to have straight waspy teeth, lightened his hair. He even considered getting a nose what? job to make his uh, nose more oh, wasp. Tom Hanks, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. He then went and spent time at Yale and then he holed up in Merrill Lynch where they filmed all the Bond scenes to get a sense of what it's like to be a Bond trader. 
And within minutes of arriving at Merrill Lynch, the women of the office building jammed up the elevators because they were all trying to get to Tom Hanks's floor so they could go and see Tom Hanks. They had to send him home because this trading was getting shut down. I think the biggest issue that they ran into was that everybody on the project, since they needed it to be this prestige thing, was making like really big choices. It's like really weird wide angle shots constantly and like everything feels very extreme and exaggerated and like all the performances are really big. Did this ever feel like a grounded or like real world in any way to you guys as you were watching the film? It's like watching a a period piece drama starring all Batman villains. Like it's (laughs) one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Kim Cattrall is bizarre. Um I don't know. It was really strange. Yeah. That is so accurate. I love that like we were ragging on the accents earlier, but even the waspy people. Yes. Like Sam, did it remind you of volunteers with Lawrence Burn the Third? <laughs> Lawrence Burn the Third. They took this excessive approach to every element of the production, and for very human reasons. There's a shot in the film of a Concorde landing at Kennedy Airport, and it's yeah. like set against the setting sun with the Empire State Building. Eric Schwab is Brian De Palma's advanced man. He goes and scouts locations everywhere. He's a young guy, wants to be a director. De Palma tells him, there's this line in the script, exterior Kennedy airport night, the sky is the labyrinth of planes taking off and landing. And that's up to Schwab to shoot. And De Palma says, don't shoot it. We're never gonna put a shot of a plane landing in my movie. It's too cliche. And Schwab says, what if I can make it the best plane landing shot in the history of cinema? And so Schwab decides he's going to use a computer to calculate when the sun will be at the exact angle over this runway with a Concorde flying in from Air France and the Empire State Building locked in and there would be like one two minute window on July 12th of that year when he could film this shot. And that shot cost $100,000 to capture. Uh and it's in the movie for four seconds. And so like that's the level of excess that they were taking with this project. I mean, it was a good shot. I, I like seeing a Concord as much as the next fella. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know what's funny, though? Like, isn't the whole point of the book sort of that exactly what you said at the top of this? People are so focused on themselves and these kind of material things that they lose sight of just being decent people. Yeah. So the movie ends up becoming the book. Like, that's really what ends up happening. So De Palma becomes so concerned that the movie's just dialogue, people talking to each other. And he's a very visceral storyteller that he's coming up with ways to move the camera that are 
I think distracting. For example, the aerial mm-hmm. shot. Yes, of that was bizarre. Tom Hanks like closing the deal on the bonds. He's just like hovering above him. It's like God's eye. They felt like they needed to capture the kind of extreme language that Wolf uses in his books with a visual language that matched it. And so everything became excess. And but then the movie became a parody of itself as they were shooting it. Now we talked about the race stuff and you we mentioned that the judge character was originally white. So two weeks before the production starts, Lucy Fisher, who's the you know exec at Warner Brothers, reads the new draft and she realizes, oh my God, we've got a race problem. In making the main characters more likable, Sherman McCoy and Peter Fallow, two white dudes, the movie no longer took equal shots at all of the other characters in the movie. The book's an equal opportunity offender towards every group. The movie garners sympathy for the two white characters, and then it criticizes all the black people and the Puerto Ricans and the Jewish people and the rich women. And Fisher's biggest concern is that there is not a sympathetic black character in this movie because race relations you know, are very important at this point in time. Right. So De Palma had originally rejected the idea of having Judge Kavitsky being a black character, but as he was watching the Oscars two weeks out from shooting, he saw Driving Miss Daisy sweep and saw this audience going crazy for Morgan Freeman, and he realized maybe they'll be willing to root for Morgan Freeman in that speech more at the end of the movie if it's him, as opposed to Alan Arkin, like a Jewish also, man. Also, you, you briefly said, you know, race relations being sort of top of mind at that time. This is two years post the Central Park Five. Is that accurate? I believe so. There's yeah, a, within, within two yeah, or three. There's a lot of bad visual callbacks, I will say, but to what the Central Park Five trial looked like and what the media and public reaction was around that. So the next day, De Palma calls Fisher he says, okay, let's recast the judge. So Alan Arkin's out. They pay him 120 grand anyway because it was guaranteed in his contract. And then Freeman comes in and his availability is so specific that the carefully arranged 67-day shooting schedule just explodes. They can't shoot the courtroom scenes in LA anymore. They have to shoot Freeman in New York and they have to find a courtroom in New York that's, that will let them film in it overnight during the time that they have Freeman. This drives up costs Four million dollars across the project in the end. This single decision is another four million dollar bump because what ends up happening is they push and push and push and reroute so many scenes that they're paying for hundreds of extras. All those extras in the courtroom are on standby getting paid every single thirty thousand dollars a day on extras. Just pushing this scene, pushing this scene. They're looking for courtrooms all up and down the East Coast. It's a disaster. On April 9th, they're a week out from shooting. De Palma's going into rehearsal with his actors. Things are going well, except with Bruce Willis. What De Palma quickly realizes is that Bruce Willis can't really act. Bruce Willis can play himself, Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis, the likable rogue, but he can't really play anything else. So a week out from production, they decide they have to entirely rewrite his character and all the narration so the character is Bruce Willis (laughs) instead of the other way around. They're rewriting all of it, and production officially begins on April 13th, which what day of the week do you think that is? Friday. Friday the 13th, and is a, it is officially the uh, highest budgeted film ever shot in New York proper. It doesn't have a locked schedule, it doesn't have a locked script, and it lacks the ending location of the courtroom. Everyone's very nervous. Like the press is going crazy about this movie. Uh, Bruce Willis has brought on like an enormous entourage to protect him from like his fans and the rest of the cast. Uh, and problems start 
immediately. The biggest issue that they run into is that Fernando Ferrer, who is the Bronx Borough president, had just spent a long time fighting the image of the Bronx that Bonfire the Vanities the Books had created, and now was like, fuck you guys for displaying my community this way in the movie. And so he petitioned the film and said, I want you to end the movie showing new housing under construction, the Bronx Zoo, our new food market, and the following caption. The real story of the people of the Bronx can be found in their struggles and accomplishments as demonstrated in the last three years by the renovation of thousands of housing unit, units of housing, new jobs, and the pride its neighborhoods are home to cultural institutions attracting more than 2 million visitors a year. And the studio says, we're not doing yeah. it. And they reroute the request to the mayor's office. And the mayor is like, you can't do this. This is going to put millions of dollars in production money at risk for coming in here and told Fernando to back down. So that's how they ended up getting the leverage to shoot the Bronx as if it was a war zone, as you guys have discussed. And it was it's really bad. Yeah. And actually, the Bronx residents were so mad that when they were filming. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Filming those scenes, all the guys are pimps and the women are sex workers. Locals were lined up at the fencing blocking the set and they were throwing eggs and light bulbs into the set trying to disrupt the filming to the point where the production hired a motorcycle gang to act as security guards oh, to keep no. the locals away from the fence uh, so they would stop egging these Ooh, people. Yeah. At what point have you hired Hell's Angels and the <laughs> local people are... <laughs> it's become the Altamont Raceway incident at this point with the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, it's, you know you fucked up, and I feel like it would have been way before that shoot. Listen, <laughs> if you're hiring the Hells Angels for anything, you need to take a step back and reevaluate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so on top of that, there are some interesting cosmetic issues. Bruce Willis did not want people to know that he was balding. So as a result, Bruce would have his scalp painted every single day before shots so that uh, the camera did not pick up that he was bald. The problem is that the lights would reflect off the paint. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, Bruce Willis is standing. We got to like create the same thing on you. But then Bruce Willis was like, I'm not balding. What are you talking about? And they were like, uh, okay, we don't really know what to do. So they would just let Bruce Willis paint his scalp. But the problem is his character wears glasses. So every time he took the glasses off, it would smear paint <laughs> along the side of his face <laughs> towards his eyes. And they would have to have the hair and makeup come in and like clean him up and make him okay again because of the scalp paint. And it would get so hot that the scalp paint would drip. Oh my God, Bruce, his, just be bald. You're such a handsome bald man. It's fine. 
Yeah, I gotta say, as a fellow balding man, it's not worth it, Bruce. You gotta, you gotta ease no. off. Let nature take its course on it's that fine. one. It's uh, fine. The other uh, physical issue that we run into is that uh, Melanie Griffith, who was under a lot of pressure in the film and was like really nervous about the way she looked, got breast implants like halfway through the shoot, and so showed up like having lost a lot of weight from having her kid. She was very thin. And they shoot all the New York scenes, but then when they go and shoot on sound stages in LA, three weeks later she shows up with um, a cup size three sizes larger than when she had started the project. It totally threw off potentially the continuity of scenes because she would enter a building with like a cup in the first scene, and then she would be in a, a D cup all of a sudden, like in the following scene, uh, you know, inside the building, which caused some issues. I will say to Lucy Fisher's credit. Uh, she basically was like, good for her. They look great. Like, I'm not concerned about it. The head of Warner It Brothers. does feel like the least uh, of your worries. Yeah. <laughs> that that seems okay compared yeah. to everything else. Yeah, you, you got to pick your battles at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the movie quickly fell a week and then two weeks behind. They're losing locations left and right. And they finally find their courthouse location, which, as I mentioned, adds like $4 million to the shoot. They ended up finding a a big enough courtroom to shoot the scene. And when they get there, Morgan Freeman doesn't know his lines. Morgan Freeman had taken $650,000 to do the movie, but he was not a huge fan of the project. And I'm going to play you a clip uh, of Morgan Freeman talking about the movie. Nobody starts out to make a bad movie. Nobody. But they happen. Too Um, often. Sometimes even huge projects, like Bonfire of the Vanities, top book, <coughs> number one actor on the planet at the time. Order, I say, order! Everything going for it. Did everybody think it was a slam dunk? He's shaking his head. He refuses <laughs> to answer the question. No. <laughs> there was a, a vibe that something wasn't happening, or what? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Throwing in practically. Really? Yeah. It's just, how does that work? There's just, the, was the, the script or just the sense on the set or? No, it's. <clears throat> when an airline crashes, <laughs> they say that this is mostly as a result of a series of mishaps mm-hmm. same thing uh, so that was Morgan oh Freeman on God. Bonfire of the Vanities <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah to add insult to injury the press is just going crazy with this project it's getting a lot of bad press along the lines of like is this going to be the biggest flop ever Spike Lee and Tom Wolfe are at a Coro Foundation's commitment to leadership dinner and they're both on stage and uh Spike Lee gives away the ending to the movie. Spike Lee had read a copy of the script. Tom Wolfe had not. Spike Lee turned to Tom Wolfe and was like, what do you think about what they're doing with your movie? And Tom Wolfe gave a stock answer, which is, I hope it's great. It's got good people on it. But for a book, even if the movie's bad, more people will hear about it and maybe they'll read the book. It's like a very PC answer. And then Spike Lee goes, what do you think about the ending where Henry Lamb, the comatose black person, wakes up and we realize he was scheming too. He was faking it. And he just it. pretended. Yeah. He was faking it to get this whole thing going in the first place. So like the the all the black characters are schemers like in this movie opportunists. Like what do you think about that? 
and there's press at this dinner. And so he gives away the ending to the movie, which is like a racially charged ending in public during production. And it gets leaked and it's on every page of every paper. And then a copy of the script got leaked as well. And they were like putting quotes from the dialogue of the script in newspaper releases. Uh, The studio had to get like a big apology from Spike Lee, who was actually very concerned that his career was going to be affected by it. But, you know, not what you want uh, your, you know, film getting its ending spoiled so quickly so they they go into post they start editing the movie they re you know loop all of melanie griffith's dialogue uh and then they do their test screening for the studio and this is like the make or break moment and the studio executives love it they're like it's a masterpiece this movie's great we're so excited. We just need to cut a little time out of it. You know, everyone's clapping each other on the back. De Palma's relieved. Like, we're going to be fine. You know, we're, we, they bring in the composer to get started. We're cruising. We're going to make our Christmas release date. Like, everybody's working overtime. And guys, like, how delusional do you think they must have been to really be thinking, like, <laughs> we're golden going into this final Chris, stretch? let me tell you about a magical little thing called cocaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, yeah. <laughs> It may be the 90s, but we still have a cocaine. Um, Did they see the same movie, or was this a different cut of the movie? It was longer, but it was mostly the same movie. Including Um, the same ending? Did they have to recut that ending, or is this basically the same? Ah, so they very quickly go into public test screenings, where they're going to screen it in San Diego, and they get, you know, the feedback scores and cards and everything. And De Palma's traumatized about public test screenings because a year before, he had made a movie called Casualties of War, a very serious Vietnam War movie that was supposed to be, it was uh, Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox, and no one's seen it, and it test screened horribly. And the public just didn't get it, so he hated test screenings. They go into the test screening, everybody's optimistic, uh, and all the cards are like, the movie's kind of fun, but the ending is garbage. Everyone hates the ending. Nobody understands it. They're like, why is Tom Hanks suddenly like a pirate fighting with a sword, like protecting Morgan Freeman from a crowd? Uh, why are we in slow motion? Like, we don't understand what's happening here. They didn't like t- Morgan Freeman's speech. Um, and all they didn't like any of the ending. And so all of a sudden... The studio was like, "Oh my God, we have to, we have to fix." You know, Wait, the and ending. sorry, quick clarification: ending. was did the ending contain the thing that Spike Lee had leaked, or was that already out? Yes, it did, it did contain. Okay. It did. Yeah, they didn't like that Henry. Actually, some people did like that Henry, Henry Lamb got away with it, and then some people were like, "That's very offensive." To De Palma's horror, their two favorite scenes of the whole movie. Can you guys get? Do you have any guesses as to what their two favorite scenes of the whole movie were? Uh, Sam, I'm going to lop it over to you because I believe you're probably on the same wavelength. You want to take a shot at that one? Luke, there are two favorite scenes, and it's got to be soft dick and shotguns. <laughs> All right, we're doubling down. Uh, it was not soft dick or shotguns. It was Tom Hanks dragging his dog down the oh, hallway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that. That was, people's, that was people's number one favorite scene was... Of the whole movie was just Tom Hanks dragging his dog. And then the other favorite scene was uh, Beth. Uh, God, I'm going to forget her name, but the actress who photocopied her, photocopies her, her yep. vagina. Uh, that was their other favorite scene. Now, that scene was particularly traumatizing for her and De Palma because they were secretly having an affair while the filming Ooh. was happening. And so he had to direct her. She what that she actually took her underwear off, threw it in Bruce Willis's face, and straight up went, you know, 
Bush to copier <laughs> on the um, oh my God. photocopier. And the scene took nine hours to no. shoot. And she felt and she felt awful at the end of it. Aww. She felt really, really terrible uh, at the end of it. And De Palma didn't feel good about it. Like the whole thing felt weird. But audiences loved it. So I guess it, you know, paid off. They test screen the movie and they they cut they cut the ending down. They take out the Henry Lamb part first, and then they cut the sword fight. Finally, after the third and final test screening, they cut from the speech to Peter Fallow at his book, and it feels like you said like the movie just ends out of nowhere because they removed basically half of the third act due to the audience feedback, and that also allowed De Palma to keep other parts of the rest of the movie and get the movie to two hours and two minutes, whatever it was. So they do an industry screening December 19th, and then they start getting reviews from the trades and De Palma's anxiety just spikes. Hollywood Reporter, uh, it has enough incendiary cinematic devices to keep 50 toxic dumps in perpetual fiery rage. Uh, Bonfire will be quickly extinguished at the box office. Uh, You've got to be a genius to make a movie this bad. It was pretty brutal. And so De Palma... Uh, seeing all of this on December 20th says, I'm leaving Los Angeles. So one day before the movie premieres, Brian De Palma accepts an invitation from his new girlfriend, podcast favorite, Gail Ann Hurd, to go and spend the holidays in Aspen. So Brian De Palma leaves LA before the movie premieres. Everybody is waiting for the axe to fall. And the movie premieres on Friday, December 21st. Uh, It gets the full round of reviews. New York Times, gross and unfunny. LA Times, a disastrous misjudgment. Chicago Tribune, a very ugly piece of work. The studio's like, maybe with Tom Hanks and Bruce Willie, we can get to 10 million for the opening weekend, maybe at least six or seven. In the end, it took in $3.1 million its opening Oof. weekend. On a $50 million budget, it came in second to Kindergarten <laughs> Cop and oh, $8 that million. One's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even though other films flopped that Christmas, Bonfire of the Vanities was the movie that took the heat for all the reasons you guys said. This was a movie that it seemed like it was stomping on the Bronx in order to make its point. It felt like it was a movie that failed to understand the irony of the original. And in trying to make its lead characters sympathetic, they made the movie really racist yeah. as a result because everybody else uh, seems like an asshole. And in just a hilarious, unironic fashion, Peter Guber, the guy who put the project together the minute the movie came out, did everything he could to distance himself from it. He was like, well, you know, I was not involved uh, in any creative decisions by the time that that thing uh, got Classic going. Classic Guber. Yeah, in the end, uh, the movie was voted Worst Film of the Year by American Film Magazine. It was not nominated for any Academy Awards. It brought in $15 million at the box office against its $50 million budget. And a lot of people believe, unfortunately, that Melanie Griffith is the one who paid the price uh, as an actor in the film for its eventual demise. She is the one who worked the least coming off of the movie. Um as we know, Tom Hanks simply exploded after that, and Bruce Willis, although he maybe took a slight dip, continued to get tons of work in the action space. Unexpectedly, Kim Cattrall became one of the most famous of the four of them when she landed her role in Sex and the City uh, at age 40. Uh, and Brian De Palma was very scarred and traumatized, and as a result, kind of ended up returning to making the sort of gonzo fare that he'd done before, leaving the studio world Behind, He went on to do Raising Cain with John Lithgow, which is just a nutso movie, Carlito's Way, 
Uh, and then he kind of returned to studio stuff with Mission Impossible. And then just made a real string of stinkers with uh, Snake Eyes, Mission to Mars, Femme Fatale, The Black Dahlia, Redacted, Passion, uh, and Domino most recently. So Brian De Palma remains this incredibly polarizing director. Some people think he's a genius. Some people think he's a hack. Um, but what's important, I think, to know about him is that he realized through this process and the process of making all of his films was that he could never compromise when he made his movies. So if you watch one of his movies, you're going to know it's Brian De Palma, whether you like it or not. He finally said this thing that I'll conclude with in the book. When dealing with studio executives, he felt that he had to hold the line on matters he felt were important. They could give their advice about this actor or that sequence and you would seriously consider what they had to say but their emotional investment in the film ended when they passed their suggestions on to the director. De Palma, on the other hand, would be thinking about this movie for the rest of his life. What I think is interesting with this film is that so many of the decisions actually weren't De Palma's to make. The studio selected Melanie Griffith. The studio selected Bruce Willis. Tom Hanks was on the movie before De Palma got there. They had a script before he got there. They made him cut his ending. He didn't even write the original book. This is someone who's an intensely original person who made a movie where he was not allowed to be intensely original in any way except for how he moved the camera and how he shot it. And I think that's why this movie looks so nuts when we watch it. It's like this was the one area where De Palma could go full flex and do all the crazy shit that he wasn't allowed to do with all of the other aspects of the production. I personally love a lot of De Palma's work. I thought this movie was a garbage fire. <laughs> and one of the things that I really want to talk to you guys about is like, I thought Tom Hanks was so horribly cast in this movie. And I'm just curious how you guys felt having watched him and, you know, so many roles coming up to this. I just thought like he was the absolute wrong choice. Oh, yeah. I think uh, I think this might be, and, and Luke, you, you might want to tell me if you agree, but this might be our worst Hanks yet. Mm. Yeah, I figure we'll, we'll have to dive more into that because I really liked your point, Chris, about how when he was cast, we have seen exactly as many movies as the people casting him <laughs> had, mm-hmm. had seen by this point, minus the ones we've seen before this project. Yeah, if you gave me a lineup of the movies we've seen, I honestly might prefer this to something else, like, say, Bachelor Party, but it's a really, it's it's a hard choice for sure. Actually, you know what? Fuck it. No. I would take Bachelor Party over this, a movie that has a coked up donkey and belly dancing apropos of nothing versus this. Yeah, 100%. Bachelor Party, at least, it's wretched. It's wretched. Don't watch it. But it, it at least achieves some of what it's trying to do. And I feel like Tom, at least in this, just couldn't get it in. It's a, it's a toughie. With that face and that amount of energy, it's hard to hard to put him into this kind of a role. I am totally with you that if they just flipped Bruce Willie with the Hanks, uh, you would have had a way better film. And uh, we would have had a much more interesting watch since our whole thing is movies that Hanks has been featured in. This would have been a fascinating adventure for us. Oh, yeah. So all well, around, just a better choice. I have a question for you guys because, like, do you think we all know Tom Hanks is a great actor? Miscast or not miscast, is what he is providing in this movie, by your expert opinions, good acting? I'm really curious what you think, Sam, because I have a suspicion that what we think of as Tom Hanks is a great actor, which he is a great actor, but thinking about the roles he's known for, like Castaway or Saving Private Ryan, these are all movies where he's he gets to be really high energy as mm-hmm. well. I don't know. I mean, has he done a really serious down? Yes, he's done one. 
Which one was that? Road to Perdition. Uh, which is one that I've seen, actually. I think he's excellent yeah, in it. Actually. I remember really uh, liking it. I'm curious. Can I piggyback on your question, Lizzie, for these guys? So do you think that Tom Hanks can play sex scenes? Because I thought he was going to just... My biggest problem with him was that every time Melanie Griffith grabbed at him, it seemed like he became a giggly little boy where he was like, oh, what are you doing? No, we're like, he didn't seem turned on. He seemed uncomfortable with the idea of sex. And his wife was on set a lot because Rita Wilson was in the beginning of the movie. Um, so I'm just curious what you guys think about Tom Hanks as a sex icon. Well, you know, he actually doesn't have a sex sex in a lot of his earlier movies. And so he's good as like a like a romance, but not as like sex yes when it comes to doing the deed yeah he can get you all the way up there and then you need you need a second person to to finish the job yeah he's a great boyfriend if we were to follow through with your talking about like uh kim cattrall's move to uh sex in the city if we were to have tom hanks follow that same trajectory i don't think he would work as an aiden or mr (laughs) big like there's there's no we can't get across the precipice with what tom hanks is delivering that's true (laughs) So, uh, as you guys know, we like to end our episodes uh, with an upbeat section called What Went Right. Uh, And obviously, Tom Hanks didn't go right in this movie. um, But in your mind, is there anything that went right? Is there anything that you can speak to where you think, you know what, In in the disastrous set of decisions that were made in putting this together, this thing or element was was great, or at least worked. So, I actually really liked the whole... Uh, Don Giovanni bit. I actually like that opera. Um, and then I also thought that it worked pretty well as, um, as, uh, Jesus, what is it? Like a, like a mirror, a comparison, uh, allegory, whatever yeah. the fuck, uh, for, um, for what was happening to Tom. And so I, I thought that worked and I enjoyed that. And also the poet at the, uh, uh at the event. Yeah, it was great. Also, you're talking about the poet. That's one of the only parts in the entire movie that genuinely made me laugh. So quick fact, Brian De Palma would love you. The studio wanted to cut Don Giovanni and it was the last thing they shot. The studio was like, we're not paying for it. And Brian De Palma was like, what if I can do it for just $75,000? And they said, if you go over, you have to cover the difference. And well, so Brian well, De Palma like, stuck up for that sequence because he thought it was so important to show Tom Hanks' state of mind through that sequence but it almost didn't make it into the movie yeah it was it was genuinely good and so i will take back what i said about brian de palma earlier (laughs) you don't think he was a mistake very good uh luke how about you anything that went right yeah i actually really liked the casting of uh i'm going to exclusively refer to him as donnie from fraser as the assistant attorney general um saul rubinick saul rubinick yeah i actually really liked him and i thought his character had some fun like the wire energy like he's this young upstart who's trying to uphold something and also please his superiors and but they don't dwell on it long enough to really have anything go well so the the thing that i liked about him was just that uh you know his deliveries are great and it's fun to see donnie from fraser doing some other stuff he seemed like the only person who knew what movie he was in like yeah he was given and also uh kevin dunn was had the right energy uh who played his attorney he's from um veep uh and he played his lawyer at the end. Like those were the only two guys where I was like, "Oh, you guys understand the tone of the movie that is like supposed to happen right now." Right. How about you, Lizzie? 
Um, I got nothing. I, I guess maybe the the scene where Tom Hanks is dragging his dog down the hallway because it does remind me of the first time I got a leash on my cat many years ago and tried to get her to go outside and she just threw herself on the floor like a shrimp that I just then out of frustration slowly dragged across the carpet towards the door. So it brought back memories. Fair enough. <laughs> For mine, I'm gonna actually go with a another like what went wrong here. I know this is taboo, but um, shortly after this movie was released, Jeffrey Katzenberg penned an open letter to all of the executives around Hollywood and was like, "We can't afford to keep making movies like this." And it is widely believed that this and a couple of other prestige pictures that flopped in the early '90s are what led directly to the IP only. Hollywood approach uh, that we have seen take hold over the last 20 years. Mm. And this idea of taking like brainy, artsy adults, you know, movies in the mid 50, 40 million dollar range was all of a sudden understood to be no longer viable. Uh, and really the last year that we had a lot of movies like this was 1999, but this kind of marked their steady decline. So actually what I'm going to say, what went right though, is that 20 years <laughs> later now Quibi is looking for a buyer and so they can suck it. I heard but, they're um, doing great. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, well guys, uh, I'm very sorry that we all had to watch this movie. Um, I really don't think anyone out there should watch it. Uh, <laughs> go read the book, uh, The Devil's Candy. It's highly worth it. Uh, and then go listen to Hanksy Panksy. And uh, their their back catalog is just an absolute treat. It's riddled with hot takes and conspiracies and a lot more talk about Tom Hanks's member than you ever <laughs> thought you needed. But I can tell you that you do. Please check it out. Guys, anything else we can plug for you or you want to plug? I, I think that's it. Tell the people where to find you. Oh, uh, you can get us on uh, Twitter at Hanksy Panksy. We're on Facebook. It's Hanksy Panksy Podcast. And then you can email us with your conspiracies at hanksypanksypod at gmail.com. Yeah. Thanks again, guys, for being here. And as always, to our listeners, please give us a rating and review. Five stars. Five stars. We had a couple of really good ones this week. As always, send us your recommendations. You can DM us through Instagram at whatwentwrongpod. And then you can also email us at whatwentwrongpod at gmail.com. And also just uh, remember to vote and get out there and, you know, vote, vote, vote your heart out. All right. That does it for our uh, episode this week. We will see you guys next week for some more disastrous fun. Bye. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. 